Welcome, everybody, to Hope Church. It's great to have people in the room today. So grateful to God that we are progressively returning to some kind of normal. Recognize the majority of you are watching from home, and a big welcome to you. God's with us always. His promise to us is that he will always be with us. The privilege we have as Christians in this new covenant is that we have the Holy Spirit with us constantly. So the great prophecy, he will pour out his spirit upon all people. That's our privilege. That was the privilege anticipated for a great day where historically in the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, ones and twos got the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit with us constantly, so wherever we are, we can know something of the tangible, real presence of God. But there's something very unique and wonderful about when the church gathers. So, Lord, please hasten the day when we can really enjoy that together. Please turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 3. We are continuing through the book of Ezra together. And the title for today's message is this, Restarting What's Been Missed. Restarting What's Been Missed. And we'll read the first seven verses of Ezra chapter 3 together. And I'm reading from the ESV version. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are your children. We've been called by you to belong in your family. What rich privilege you've bestowed upon us. And our prayer today is that we would learn something new of who you are. We'd have a fresh encounter with you. We'd know a fresh sense of your spirit being poured upon us, that we would draw ever closer as your children into your very throne room. I pray, come and, and meet us right now. Come and stir our hearts to wonder 
to worship, to adoration. Let us know the goodness and the kindness and the nearness of Almighty God. We thank you, Father, for your Son, our King, our Savior, our friend. And we thank you for the helper. And we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit today to glorify Jesus. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is a hugely significant moment. The Israelites, after 70 years, have returned to Jerusalem. And this is the first moment where they all gather together. We know there's about 50,000 people. They've made the great journey over from Babylon. They come to the derelict city. They find their towns. They find their derelict homes. Can you imagine returning to your house after 70 years of it not being lived in and to your property? I'm imagining a lot of spiders and cobwebs. I'm imagining it's a bit of a state. They then have to pick up the pieces and make this home. But this is the first occasion where they all come together, where they gather together. Dust kicking up as hundreds and thousands start walking to the assembly point, to the gathering point, having not had that moment for so many years. You might think, well, what, what's the big deal? Again, I started just a moment ago by speaking about the presence of the Holy Spirit that we get to enjoy. You have to appreciate that for the Israelites, the place where God's presence was, was located to where the temple is. Their sense of knowing and feeling and experiencing the power and the presence of God hung really on the gathering to Jerusalem, to the temple, where the presence was particularly strong. Having walked with God for many years and having known the Spirit of God living within me for many years, I don't know what it would be like to suddenly have a sense of complete absence. Now, we're all experiencing a sense of the absence of being gathered, but to have a complete absence of the presence of God which I think would be what many would have experienced for many, many years. So here's the moment where we gather. Here's the moment where we can anticipate, again, something of the presence of God. So a question for us is going to be, what is it that they prioritize as they come together? What is it that they really want to give themselves to? What matters for God's people when God's people are together like this in this assembly? So we're going to see three things from here. First is that God's people are children and one man. Secondly, God's people worship before they work. And then thirdly, God's people worship according to what is written. So the first verse, we see this. When the seventh month came, that's a significant moment in their calendar. It's where a number of feasts and festivals take place. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in the towns, and the people gathered as one man. So, firstly, they're spoken of as the children of Israel. Now, it's not that the gathering was of the adults and all the children stayed behind in, in the towns to fend for themselves. Chaos would have ensued. The children of Israel is a description of who the Israelites are before God. They are his Children, And so, of course, that speaks of dependence, humility, weakness. 
When you think of children, you're thinking of those who are, without the intervention of parents or of adults, are helpless. And God speaks of his people as his children, familiar language for us, but this is powerful to the Israelites to have that sense of an identity. The first time we come across this phrase is in Exodus 3, which is the burning bush incident. When Moses finds the burning bush, he approaches the burning bush. There's a voice that speaks to him from the burning bush, and he's commissioned by Almighty God to rescue the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and this is what God says. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Whenever that phrase, we encounter that phrase, children of Israel, it's almost always set within the context of the need of God to bring intervention, God to bring a rescue, God about to be the father to his needy children. It puts the Israelites in their rightful place, dependent, needy, humble. And who is God? God is the Father, the Rescuer, the Provider, the Protector. And he rescues them from Egypt, he's rescued them from exile, and he's brought them back to Jerusalem as his children. And that is who we are. We are the children of God, and we have been rescued by our Father. This is what it says in Colossians 1, verse 13. For He, the Father, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You and I, as Christians, have to grasp hold of this fact we are children rescued by a father. We've been rescued. We have a father who came to find us in our lostness. Do you know what that's like to lose a child? Just before we left Portsmouth to come here, we had a final evening on the beach with friends. We had um, like a barbecue on the beach. It was a summer's evening in June in South Sea. The beach was packed with thousands and thousands of people. And Lizzie says, where's Isla? And we had that moment. Now usually, it's a couple of minutes and you find the child and it's all fine. We were looking for her for half an hour. And it was, you know, sick to the stomach with worry. What, I mean, we were beside ourselves. And then the moment when we saw our friends coming towards us, with Isla in his hands, the emotion is just indescribable, that sense of, oh, relief. <sighs> and you, you grab the child, you hug them, and you feel, I'm so sorry, so happy that you're home. Spiritually, for each of us, we have been rescued. And for each of us, that moment of, I've got you. When Jesus says, oh, there's a party in heaven, Think of the lost coin, you think of the lost sheep, you think of the lost son. You and I need to understand, my story is I was lost, but I was rescued by my father. And the privilege of children of God is that we get to call God Father, Abba. God is not just some distant deity, 
some out there divine being that we can't know personally. Jesus said, when you pray, you pray, our Father. When Jesus prayed, he said, Father. And until you and I get hold of that privilege, until you and I learn to pray to the Father, we're never going to pray to God as Jesus would want us to. Do you know you get to call God Father? Totally, utterly dependable, good, kind, generous Father. So they're the children of Israel, but yet they're also spoken of here as one man. So again, let's just look at the verse together again. In verse 1, the people gathered as one man. So on the one hand, they're children, and yet here they're spoken of as one man. So we're talking about a man, someone who's mature. We're thinking of strength. Their strength and their maturity is seen in that they've gathered. So the gathering of God's people is to this place of maturity. A man is someone who's grown up. A man is someone who's matured. At least you hope so. (laughs) Not in every case. Um, You're expecting this is a picture of maturity. One man has gathered. We've gathered as one man together. And again, this is a phrase we come to see elsewhere in the Scriptures. So this is what God says to Gideon. The Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. This phrase, when we find it in the in Old Testament texts, comes often when the Israelites are on the verge of a battle. We come as one man. We come together. We fight as one man. The Lord will be with us, and you will fight the Midianites as one man. But of course, if you know the story of Gideon, it isn't this stunning military, tactical, strategic genius It's utterly the grace of God. The battle is won. They just blow trumpets. And and the Midianites panic and flee and kill each other, and the battle is won. The whole point, of course, is it draws attention to the greatness and the power of God. But it's interesting that at this moment, as they gather into Jerusalem, that we're getting this same kind of picture. There's a battle. There's a battle coming. And you'll know that phrase. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. That's a, that's a verse that you'll often hear quoted. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit. We fight in the Spirit. Now, you know that that verse comes from Zechariah 4, verse 6. Let me just read the whole verse to you. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. We've heard that name, haven't we? Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's in the text. So we have Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. They built the altar. Zerubbabel is bringing leadership to the people of God in this moment. And Zechariah brings a prophecy to Zerubbabel, and he says, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit. There's this kind of sense of, this is how you're going to fight. You say, what do you mean fight? You've They've come to build, haven't they? It's building, not fighting. Why all this language? Their return to Jerusalem is seen as a very hostile moment by the peoples around Jerusalem. So the 
So it says here, they, they were afraid. They feared. They knew that there were enemies around them who wanted to strike at them, who wanted to get them. And the word of God comes and says, look, it's by my spirit. My spirit's led you to be here. My spirit will accomplish this work. Zerubbabel receives this prophecy. And you and I have to recognize as well, we're in a battle. We're in a battle. We engage in warfare all the time. The moment you wake up every day, you're in a battle. So I'm in a battle every single day. We're in a battle every single day, principally with, my, with the flesh. So there's a, there's a war that's taking place within me. The spirit is at war with my flesh. My spirit made alive to know God and to worship him. My flesh remains fallen and weak and prone to temptation. That's true. Newsflash for all of us. And if I wake up and I'm not, in a sense, forming that posture of today's going to be a fight for joy and for happiness and for peace and for glory in God, then I very quickly am prone to temptation, anxiety, and fear. And so it's important that we remind one another the Christian life isn't like a battle, but it is a battle. You've heard that, I'm sure, before. And so there's a sense in which the Israelites are being reminded you're in a battle, but you gather as one. We are strengthened by being together. Our oneness, our unity. That's how we reach maturity. That's why we don't remain disparate and scattered. That's why we're eager to gather again. That's why we are keen to take steps in that direction. We can't wait to be able to do this more in July and then looking forward to September. We will and must and have to gather. So what the church is, we are, in a sense, immature when we're not gathered together. It says we come together as one new man in Christ Jesus. That's what's happened now. Through Jesus Christ, through the gospel, we're one new man. The walls of hostility that separated people have been destroyed and, de and demolished, and so we gather together as one new man in Christ. And in our unity, in our togetherness, and in our gathering, in the presence of God, as the Spirit is with us, we're able to engage in spiritual battle through prayer, through worship. And so there's a sense of them gathering now, and there's a battle on the horizon. The next thing that I want us to see is this. God's people worship before they work. One of the things that's striking about this passage I read, and maybe you saw it, and if you've got your Bibles in front of you, I'd encourage you just to have a little scan of the text. You see the word offerings repeated over and over and over again. This offering, that offering, burnt offerings. This word offering is repeated on nine occasions. They gather together, this 50-odd thousand people, and the first thing that happens, I think we've got to get the temple built. Before they build the temple, they build an altar. That's the first thing they build. I thought the priority was, was the temple, isn't it? Isn't the temple our priority? The, the first thing they do is they build an altar. And it says in verse 3, they built the altar because they were afraid. 
Isn't that really interesting? You think you're afraid because of the peoples around you, so build walls, surely. Build defenses. Get your weapons together. Build up your arsenal. Get ready to fight. Get your, your weapons of war ready. That's not what they do. They build an altar. What's an altar for? It's for sacrifices. Why are they doing this? Why is this a priority for them? This is an evidence that the people who've returned to Jerusalem are very different to the Israelites that left. They've learned some lessons over the last 70 years. They recognize they've got to take the word of God seriously. And so we see this phrase, as it is written. That means that they got hold of what was written. That means they picked up their equivalent of this book, the scrolls, the law of Moses. And they read, what happens when the people gather? What did Moses say to the Israelites? What is it that God wants from us? And sacrifice Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. Bull after bull, lamb after lamb, goat after goat, dove after dove. Sacrificed on the altar, blood pouring everywhere. It's a gruesome image. You think, can't you stick on a Bethel CD or something? It's like, it's like what is this picture? It's gruesome. It's this worship. What, what's this all about? Whenever we come across sacrifices, whenever we come across the spilling of blood in the Old Testament and the repetition every time, another animal, another animal, another animal, costly, kind of despicable picture, we know it's pointing forward to the need for an ultimate sacrifice to happen. We know that the blood is spilt in order that God might forgive his people in order that he might show mercy but but the mercy they receive and the forgiveness they receive isn't because of the blood of this animal it's because God is merciful and he is going to deal with their sin he's not dealing with their sin simply because of animals blood being shed he's going to intervene in a way which is pretty remarkable fascinating thing is that this guy's Zerubbabel pops up again a bit later in our Bibles 600 years later in fact in the genealogy of Jesus. Zerubbabel is there. We find him in Luke. We find him in Matthew. You see the significance of that. As Zerubbabel is building the altar, and as the animals are being sacrificed, as Zerubbabel is leading that through, it's actually all about a distant grandson of Zerubbabel's who will himself crucified and will himself spill blood so that there'll be no more need for animal sacrifices because he will do the ultimate work. You see, you can't escape the cross anywhere in the Bible. And in this moment, as they return with these sacrifices being performed, there's an appeal for something better. But the recognition that we must, if, we are, if this God that we want to enjoy the presence of is holy, 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 and we know our sin. How do we reconcile those two things? How can we draw near? You draw near on account of 
God dealing with your sin on the basis of blood being spilled and not just the blood of animals. It's the blood of his son. They're feeling intimidated, they're fearful, and they worship. They worship through sacrifices. And as they worship and as they are obedient, there's a sense in which their fear is lifted. Their eyes are lifted up towards God. I want to read this psalm to you, Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. He is the lifter of our heads. When we feel intimidated or we feel fearful, and many are feeling fearful right now, our response is to worship. Our response is to praise. Our response is to lift our eyes to our God who has intervened, who has dealt with everything that's opposed to us. We're reminded of the victory of Jesus Christ. And as we look to him, as we fix our eyes upon him, something of our problems diminish as he increases. As a higher, more glorious view of him fills our gaze, so my problems and my fears and my intimidations go. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That word guard is, is, or could be translated as fortress. Fortify yourselves. Put a shield around you through praise, through prayer, through thanksgiving. They praise, they worship before they work. I think of Mary, Mary and Martha. Jesus said Mary's chosen a better thing. She chose to sit at his feet. Here's the thing for us as a church. We're going to keep things simple over the next, over the coming months. We recognize the importance of worship. We're a worshiping people. How do we respond to all that's happening in the most meaningful way? It's probably not getting to work straight away, but getting to worship. We can't wait to worship together. I can't wait for us to rip the masks off, for us to sing, for us to rejoice, for us to worship. We worship as well according to what is written. For the Israelites, it meant this festival, the festival of booths, remembering God leading them out of Egypt, remembering the Passover, remembering the power of God. All these festivals were given to them that they might remember what God has done what does it mean for us to worship according to what it is written? What should be the priorities for us as we gather together? Here are just a few verses. Here's what we want to give ourselves to. Again, let's remember what we're called to. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching, Ephesians 5.18. Be filled, sorry, that's 1 Timothy. Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. 
Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Do you know one thing I can't wait for is body ministry. One of the big frustrations of this last year, and we've done our best to include lots of different people. I think Steve and the team have done superbly with that. But it's not the same. Body ministry isn't just about what comes through the microphone. It's about what we give to one another as you walk through the door with a hug. It's the words of encouragement. It's the, it's the prophetic moments where you, you feel stirred to go over and to speak to someone and ask them, are they okay? We've missed body ministry. And when we gather again, we want the church to come and to speak and to bring words and hymns and spiritual songs and tongues and interpretations and prophetic gifts. These have been poured out upon the church. This is our privilege to know the Spirit of God using each of us. We do not believe in the ministry of one man or one woman or one person. We believe in the priesthood of all believers, and I'm grateful that that has been happening in various ways. We've been creative in ways in which we can encourage and bless one another. Praise God for that. Praise God for cakes being delivered and messages being sent, phone calls happening, going out for walks, checking in on one another. It all really matters. But when that happens as we gather together, there's something uniquely precious about that. We will restart what we've missed. We will break bread together. We will drink the wine together. We will go to the table, as it were, together. We will together look upon the cross and see our King dying in our place as our substitute, his blood spilt for us. Zerubbabel's great, great, great grandson, our Jesus, the one who's rescued us. There is so much that we could say. There is so much that we could focus on. And I'm just, I've just rattled off a whole load of things which are in the forefront of my mind and my thinking. And even now, in this room with people wearing masks, it seems to me very peculiar <laughs> that we're here. And, I can't, and it just has been weird. It's been weird, but God's been with us. And I think the, the challenge to each of us is to recognize that we are living in the last days. And we are. We're living in the last days where Jesus is going to return very, very soon. The early church lived with the sense that Jesus was about to return. Here we are, 2,000 years on, 2,000 years closer, and there are wars and there are rumors of wars and there are viruses and there are, there are earthquakes and there are volcanoes and there is a church emerging in the world, a church made up of every nation, tribe, and tongue to give glory to him. Let's not forget, and I think, how can we? These, I mean, how evident is it that these are the last days right now? And I'm grateful that one day we will see him return, our great king, and we'll meet him and we'll be like him in an instant. Let's, let's pray. Father God, we are encouraged as we read this passage. We're encouraged because on the one hand we see that wherever your people gather, worship is prominent. We're encouraged that this was a people that took seriously your word. We're encouraged 
that despite all of the fears, they overcame them. We're encouraged, Lord, because we, we relate to a lot of this as well. And I just pray for us as a church and for your church at this time. Let us recognize that we're your children, that you're our Father, that as we gather, we gather as one man mature in Christ, one new man in Christ. Let us recognize the priority for worship. Let us not be too quick to work for you. Let us be eager to worship you and to glorify you in all that we do. And Lord, I pray, help us to worship you according to what is written, that we would not fall into idolatry, that we would not make the same mistakes that the Israelites made before they headed into exile. Lord, we want to honor you and worship you as your word guides us because we want to glorify your name. We want to see you magnified. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen.